How are we doing this morning? Come on. Okay. Good. You don't have to lie to me, but you can, you can participate. This microphone is on its last leg, so bear with me. I guess I'll just do like Dale and let it sit on my chin here. Uh, well, I'm glad to be here this morning. And this morning, uh, we're coming out of Daniel. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna jump back to Daniel just a little bit, but we're coming out of Daniel. And we're going to look at Jesus and move towards Pentecost on next Sunday. And so this morning, uh, the question that I want to pose, or the question that I want to ask you is, how do you see Jesus? And uh, I've got you a nice little outline here on the board. Uh, I want to encourage you to take notes. If you want to come up later and take a picture, uh, because the whole point of that is for you to study this on your own, to go home and study this on your own, maybe dive a little deeper. We're, we're limited on time here this morning. And uh, more importantly, no, don't take for granted or just take it as the truth what we say. But your job is to go back and look through Scripture and to study it for yourself. Um, because we are faulty men, and, and it is very possible that we can make a mistake. So... I encourage you to study and, and go back, and, but I want to ask the question this morning, how do, you see, how do you see Jesus? And that may seem like a weird question, uh, coming from the pulpit of a church, uh, because everything that we believe and everything that we do is centered around who Jesus is. And so if I had left my whiteboard clean this morning and I had walked around the room and terrified everybody and asked you, how do you see Jesus, and forced you to give me an answer then we would be able to write a lot of different things on the whiteboard. We'd get a lot of different answers from a lot of different people. And just a few examples that I wrote down that I imagine that we would get is somebody probably would say that Jesus is my personal Savior. Totally good answer. Uh, someone would say Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, if someone wanted to sound really super smart, they might say Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. All those are acceptable answers. Someone could say Jesus is the Son of Mary and Joseph. Again, an acceptable answer. Someone could say, Jesus, this, you might hear this on the street. If you happen to go to the Jesus tenant Bonnery, you might hear this, that Jesus was just a good man. Again, there, that's a true statement, and that, that's a good answer. Uh, but is that who Jesus really is? Does that encompass all that he is, and does that shape how we should see him? Uh, so this morning I want to get a couple points across, and we're going to try to connect some dots. So I want you to stay with me. Because uh, it may seem a little bit scattered. But I want you to understand that perception matters. Perception matters. Jed, flip to that next slide. A lot of you have probably seen this at some point in your life. This picture right here. What do you see? Jeez. It's okay to talk. What do you see? You see an old woman. All right. You see a picture of an old woman. All right, Jed, hit the next slide. This is the same picture turned upside down. What do you see? It's a princess. All right? So perception matters. How you choose to view that picture matters. Jay, go back one. Can we do that? There we go. Now, the next step is that not only does perception matter, but it matters because it's going to determine how you live. It's going to determine how you act. So let's pretend for a moment that you're a prince. You ain't getting grandma's phone number. It's, it's not, that picture does not cause you to move and act in a way that I got to get that girl's phone number. And we go to the next slide. If you're the prince, you're out of your chair. And you're doing whatever you can to get to know this princess. It's all about perception. That's the same picture. And how you choose to view it determines what you see. And what you see determines how you act. All right? That's what I want you to understand. And I, what I want you to know this morning is that Scripture makes it clear that there's a correct way that we're to see Jesus. 
And my fear is that many of us shortchange who he is. And as a result, it shortchanges how we act and how we move as believers. All right, so again, the question this morning is, how are we to see Jesus? And to answer that question, we have to say, well, what does Scripture show us? So the first place I want to look this morning is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read that. This is the account of the temptation of Jesus. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now I want you to see a couple things here. One, Jesus goes into the wilderness, and, and Satan is going to tempt him. And so Satan comes to Jesus and says, listen, I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. And if you truly are the Son of God, all you have to do is turn these, tell these stones to become bread and solves your food problem right away. But Jesus rebukes him. And notice that when Jesus is pre- presented with temptation, his answer to removing that temptation is to quote Scripture back. So there's your little side note that you can, you can take a note on and write down. If you're thrown into a situation where you're tempted... The best way for you to overcome that is through understanding the Bible, knowing the Bible, and quoting Scripture. So then the devil takes him up to the top of the temple and says, Hey, let's imagine, I don't know, let's say 40 feet. 40 feet's a long way. You jump off of a building 40 feet and you hit your head first on the ground. It ain't going to end well. So he says, If you're the Son of God, jump off because nothing's going to happen to you. Because God's going to send his angels and they're going to catch you and he's going to make sure that nothing can happen to you. So what's the big deal? Just jump off the temple. Again, Jesus rebukes him. I want to take you to that third one. And this is totally a side note, but I really struggle with this at a point in my life. And and I want to make sure that I explain this just because I imagine other people do. Because when I read this third phase of the temptation, it really didn't make any sense to me at all. Because what happens is Satan comes up to Jesus and takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, to me, that temptation made no sense because if Jesus is the Son of God, if he is already in control of everything, what what kind of temptation is you offering me something that I'm already already have? But but here's where the temptation comes in. You have to remember that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Jesus was sent on a mission, and he knew that that mission was going to end on the cross, and that cross was going to be painful. And so the temptation really here underlying this is Satan coming up to Jesus and saying, listen, you know what you got to do, and I know what you got to do. Here's your kingdom without having to do it. That's the temptation. So that's how that temptation makes sense. And so Jesus recognizes in that moment, this is my easy way out, but I can't take it. Right? And so he rebukes the devil. There's something going on here in this temptation. Right? And if we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, this is Mark's account of the temptation. A lot shorter, only three verses. And Mark says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, 
He was in the wilderness for 40 days. He's being tempted by Satan. And afterwards, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. All right, there's something going on here. So Jesus goes directly from the temptation, moves from the temptation, and begins his ministry immediately, preaching the gospel of, Jesus, the, gospel of the kingdom of God. We're going to come back to that. I want to go back to Daniel because it's just where we came out of. And I want you to make a connection. If we go back to Daniel 2, 38 and 39, we spent a lot of time in Daniel 2. So hopefully you're familiar with it. But the king had a dream. And the king comes to Daniel and says, here's my dream. By the way, Daniel, no pressure. But I need to know what this dream means. And if you can't tell me, I'm going to kill you. So I'll give you a 24 hours of sleep on it, but I need to know what this means. So Daniel goes back to his buddies. He tells his buddies, get on your knees and pray. And I'm going to do the same thing because we've got to interpret this dream. And the only way that's going to happen is if God allows us to understand what it means. So Daniel comes back after God provides him understanding of the dream. And Daniel goes back to the king. And in, in verses 38 and 39, it says, Daniel says, And into those hands he has given, whether they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the bird of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. So if you go back a few weeks, we had it on the board. The dream was about four different kingdoms. Right? The, the king had seen a statue. The statue was broken down into four parts. And there was four different kingdoms of the world. Right? So the dream and the head of gold was speaking or referencing a kingdom, a very strong kingdom of Babylon. All right? But notice what Daniel says, too, in verse 39, or in verse 38, the very end of verse 38. He says, you, king, are the head of gold. You are the head of gold. So the head of gold is referenced as a powerful kingdom, and now the head of gold is also referenced as the king himself. What I want you to see here is that kingdom and king are synonymous. They're the same thing. So when you see in Scripture, you think of the kingdom and the king, they're referenced as the same thing. Okay, when we speak of kingdom, because think about this. There's, without a king, there's no kingdom. If there's nobody to rule over the kingdom, the kingdom basically doesn't exist. Right? You go into battle, who are you wanting to kill? The king. And then everybody scatters. Right? Because there's no leader. So the kingdom and the king are synonymous. So let's go back to Mark. Let's go back to the temptation. Jesus is tempted by Satan, rebukes him, and after this takes place, Jesus immediately begins his ministry by preaching the gospel of what? Of the kingdom of God. Right? Now let's talk for just a brief moment about this idea of gospel, this word of gospel. We could do the same whiteboard drill with the word gospel. And I come in with a microphone and I ask a bunch of different people, Define the gospel. We're going to get all the different kinds of answers, right? So let's break this down. It's a word that we often reference in church, but it's often misrepresented. People tend to take this word gospel. If you walked out on the street right now, if I would, I would dare say, and I hope that I'm right, that if we did that in this room, we're going to get some okay answers. If we walk out on the street and we ask 100 people, what's the gospel? We're going to get some crazy stuff. Because what people tend to do is they take that word and they make it what they want to make it. All right, They make it mean what they want to make it. Here at Plant Your Harvest, we understand that this word gospel means good news. It's the good news of the salvation for those who place their faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. But even in that definition, there's, a, there's something we're missing. 
because we don't truly understand context and we don't truly understand what the word means. So I want to break the word down. I'm breaking the rule of Greek class because they tell you you're never supposed to break out a Greek word in seminary in in a sermon because you're acting all high and mighty. That's not the point. I want you to understand the word. All right. So this euangelizo word right here. This is this is the verb form of gospel. So like I'm preaching the gospel. That's what this word means. If you break that word down into two parts, the EU just means good. Angelizo is a different form of the word angel. An angel is a messenger, right? So you've got good message or good announcement. And that's where we get what's the gospel, good news. That's where we get it. But the context that we miss when this was written was this word gospel was used frequently explaining a military victory. The good news of what? Well, we went out to war and we kicked some tail and we came back and we were talking about it. So it's this good news of a military victory or a conquering kingdom. All right, so now I want you to think about gospel. Jesus comes and he immediately leaves the wilderness and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, what's he preaching? He's preaching about a conquering kingdom of God Almighty. That's what he's preaching. Let's go to Luke 17, 20 and 21. You can just write that down or it's on here. Like I said, you can take a picture. I'm still thinking about this idea of king and kingdom, right? So Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. So Jesus, he leaves the wilderness. He starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, right? So people are hearing this over and over and over. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they're questioning him. And they say, basically, it says, the kingdom of God is not coming. Well, he said, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. So the Pharisees approached Jesus and basically are saying, listen, we're hearing about it. Everywhere you go, this is what you're talking about. When? How are we going to know? When's it going to happen? And Jesus responds and says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Translation, you can't see it. You can't see it. Nor will they say, look here, it's there. Or look over there, there it is. Jesus says, that's not the way it works. And here's something very interesting that Jesus says immediately after that. He looks at him. I can just see him looking at him right in the eyes. And he says, behold, pay attention, look. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Translation, it's right here. I am the king that's what Jesus is saying. Remember, king, kingdom, synonymous, it's the same thing. You're wondering when the kingdom of God's going to be here? It's here, and it's standing right in front of you. I am the king. That's what Jesus is saying. So I want you to think about this temptation of Jesus. This is, and this is, in my opinion, again, go back and study, study the word. But Jesus overcomes and rebukes Satan in the wilderness. And at that point... He becomes king. But it's a king that's on the down low a little bit. And let me give you a couple examples. In Mark 1, 40-44, Jesus heals a leper. It says, And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer yourself for cleansing. So he heals this guy, and then he says, Keep it on the down low. Don't tell anybody. Later in Mark 7, we see the same thing. He, he heals a man, and Jesus charged all the people that were around that were saw. He said he charged 
them to tell no one. He charged them to tell no one. Have you ever asked yourself, well, why would Jesus not want anybody to talk about it? Well, again, go back to that, temp- that third temptation, right? Here's the kingdom. You can have it, but you can have it. You, have, you can avoid the cross. You can have it. This is a very similar temptation. The people at the time wanted the Messiah to come, but they saw the Messiah as coming and conquering Rome, overthrowing Rome. We want that military kingdom now here on earth. That's what the people wanted. And so Jesus was telling people to stay quiet because he knew what his true mission was. The first time that he comes, and we're going to come back to this, the first time that he comes, he comes as a suffering servant. I have a job to do. I have a job to go to the cross so that you can receive salvation through me. It's not time for me to be the conquering king here on earth. I have a job to do. So let's look at his, his last week on earth. We fast forward, so Jesus is, is king, but it's kind of on the down low. And we fast forward to his last week, and we start to see during Jesus' last week, it's almost like as Jesus as king is officially being announced. But if we read our Bible in 2019, we don't see it. One, we don't see it because we don't have a king. We don't have a king. It's not how we live. We also don't know how they lived, right? And so we miss out on little things in Scripture that, that, uh, that people at the time would have definitely understood. So how is Jesus' as king being officially announced? So let's look at it. There's, there's five key things here I want to show you in Jesus' last week. The first is Palm Sunday. So everybody knows this. Uh, you're talking about Easter weekend. I had to say the word, Dale, sorry. Easter weekend, and we talk about Palm Sunday. Luke 19, 28 through 40 says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. So he looks at two of his disciples and says, Go, go into town. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and they were untying the colt, and its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. I want you to remember that. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King. Who? The King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. A couple things that I want you to notice here. Jesus is riding on that colt, and the people are recognizing him as king. Now, we tend not to get that, I think. I think it's easy for us to miss that. And the best analogy that I can give you is... Uh, last weekend, we went to uh, the drive-in in Sparta to watch the new Aladdin movie. Uh, has anybody seen the new Aladdin movie? Anybody seen the old Aladdin movie? Yeah, I haven't seen that one, so I'm hoping it's the same in the old one. But So Aladdin, you, you most likely you know the story of Aladdin, but anyway, he finds the uh, little deal there. Here comes the genie, poof. And the genie says, you got three wishes. Right, And as the story progresses, the first wish that he asks for is, I want to be a prince. I kind of got the hots for this princess, and she can't marry me unless I'm a prince. 
so I want to be a prince. So at least in this new movie, the genie automatically makes him a prince. He's got this huge entourage. And what's the first thing they do? There they come marching into town. They're singing songs, announcing this is the prince of such and such place, and all these people are oohing and on and watching. That's how it was in the time. The king would come into town, and it was an automatic parade is on. And that's what you see happening here with Jesus. He's walking into Jerusalem, and the people are recognizing him, him as king. Also, if you look back in 2 Kings 9.13, it says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, This guy is the king. So this is a similar thing, just to help you understand the context of the day. When the king came, people took off their cloaks and threw them on the ground. I don't know if it was so he didn't have to walk on the ground, kind of like a red carpet idea. I don't know. But it's what they did. That's the point. It's what they did to recognize this is royalty coming through. And it's the same thing that you see happening as Jesus is entering in on Palm Sunday. So that's number one. Number two, in Mark 14, 3 through 9, we see Jesus being anointed. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. When it says very costly, I, want you, I don't want you to think, I'm going down to Walmart and I'm buying a $100 bottle of perfume. To me, that would hurt. Yes, it's very costly. I'm talking, multiply that by 10. It's just very, very high dollar stuff. All right, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So again, it's not this idea of a couple of drops. I'll, I'll share this with you just a little. She broke it and poured the whole thing on him. Then there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you will, all, you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Remember, I'm the king. I'm here. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body. So even Jesus himself recognizes that I'm being anointed in this moment. Now I want you to go back and, and look at 2 Samuel 5.3. And again, you can just write, jot that down. But what we see in 2 Samuel 5.3 is David, King David, anointed as king. This is what happened when someone was fully officially recognized as king. It says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So the very same thing that happened to King David, we see happen to Jesus in his last week of life. He's anointed as king. Number three, Matthew 26, 26 through 28, we see the institution of a covenant uh, with Jesus as he institutes the Lord's Supper. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it broke, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. Listen to this, the very words of Jesus. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Go back to 2 Samuel 5, 3 that we just looked at. When David is anointed as king, what happened? He was anointed, but something else happened as well. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and the king David made a covenant with them. So when a new king is established, a covenant is established. And we see Jesus saying, listen, I am establishing a new covenant. I am the king. Fourth thing we see, John 19, 2 and 3 says this, it says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns 
and put it on his head. So he's going to the cross. He's got a crown of thorns put on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. If we go back to Daniel that we were just in, the story of the handwriting on the wall. So the king's in the big banquet room. A hand, a mysterious hand shows up, writes on the wall. Nobody can understand what it's written. It says, the king called loudly, this is Daniel 5, 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And the, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. So when you're a king, you're dressed like a king. When you're a ruler, you're dressed like a ruler. And even in the shame of going to the cross, Jesus is given a crown and he's dressed in a purple robe, just as a king would be. Lastly, I want you to see the ascension, Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts 1, 6 through 11. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking you up, taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. So a side note, we'll get there in a minute. He's coming back. He's coming back. But when we think of the ascension, I want you to see a couple things in particular. In Ephesians chapter 1, 20 and 23, Paul says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So when Jesus ascended, where did he ascend to? Well, he ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Translation, he's the chief. He's the king. He's the king now. He's the king forever. He's given all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Everywhere. And he put all things under his feet. Again, another image of he's in complete control. And gave him head over all things to the church. Colossians tells us the same thing, that when he ascended, he goes to the right hand of the Father. So, really bad diagram right here. But imagine yourself being on this side with the disciples. And they're looking up, and they see Jesus ascending. And what are they thinking? He's leaving. He's leaving. That's the extent of their thought. Why does he have to go? He's leaving. But when we get on the other side... Imagine the pomp and circumstance, just like him coming down times a million, like him coming down the street on Palm Sunday. It's coronation time. The king has arrived. There's this huge celebration going on. As he ascends out of sight and he crosses over into heaven, we don't even know what that means. But as he crosses into heaven, it's coronation time. He is the king. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is all power, all authority, everything, all dominion, everywhere. My point to you today is Scripture makes it very clear that we are to see Jesus as king. Very clear. So I want to take you back. If we know that, if we recognize that Jesus is king, I want to take you back just prior to his ascension. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is a great commission. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, all authority. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We're not going to beat that to death this morning. We've done that a ton in here. But that's the Great Commission. What I want to beat to death this morning is, do you understand where that comes from? It's coming from the king. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. These orders that Jesus presents you with, it is a command, and it is not presented from Jesus in any way as optional. As believers, we're commanded to move. We have been given a mission. And here's the scary thing. I'm going to get in your kitchen a little bit, and some people may walk out of here this morning a little flustered, a little mad. That's okay. I'm a coach. I get it all the time. Here's the scary thing. John 14, 15. These are Jesus' very words. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So here's a question that I want to ask you this morning. Does your life reflect what the life of a believer should reflect? And what I want to pose to you is the answer to that question is at least in part determined by the way that you view Jesus, by your perception. Do you view him as king? We get the great commission. We get Jesus ascended into heaven. We get the great coronation party going on that we're not privy to. And Jesus has provided us with what we commonly refer to as the church age, where we have an opportunity to spread the gospel across the nations to the ends of the earth, to all people groups. But he is coming again. And here's what I want you to know. He's not coming as a suffering servant, but he's going to come as a conquering king. Revelation 19, 11 through 21 tells us that. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That, that's a scary, scary picture. But I want you to understand that I think we have, tend to have two separate pictures of Jesus. Two separate pictures of Jesus. This is the first one. Matthew nineteen thirteen through 15 said, Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. Get those kids away. Do you understand who this is? Get those kids away. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. Here's what I want to pose to you this morning. And maybe I'll catch some flack. But I want you to understand what I'm saying. Go back. Come on now. Don't kill the climax here. No, no. You've got you've got nice, loving, cuddly Jesus here, and this is true. 
God is love. Jesus is love. He wants people to come to him. All right, I want you to hear me say that. This is true. But what I fear is that this is the only Jesus we see. And here's why. Because it's real easy to take this guy and mold him into what you want him to be. He wants me to be happy. That's okay. This is, this is okay. I can live my life this way because he just wants me to be happy. He's a God of love. He, want, he wants me to be happy. It's real easy to take that Jesus. Now that Jesus is true. But it's only a portion of who he is. It's real easy to take that Jesus and to turn him into whatever you want him to be. But there's another picture of Jesus. Revelation 19.6. Now you can go. On his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want you to go back and listen to some of what we just read. Here's the highlights. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The armies of heaven are with him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which he will strike down the nations. He's going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Translation, in case you didn't know, the guy on the horse is Jesus. He's coming as a conquering king. You don't take that guy. You ain't making that guy into what you want him to be. It ain't happening. So we want to we tuck that guy back in the deep, darkest corners of our mind and not think about it. And we want lovey, cuddly Jesus that, well, I can do this just because he wants, he wants me to be happy. That's not the way it works. We tend to want to take Jesus and put him in a box. And I'm telling you, go back to this concept and idea of perception. If you take Jesus and put him in a box, it's going to shape how you think and it's going to shape how you act. Because if I perceive him to just want me to be happy then it opens me up to be free to do whatever I want to do and to live however I want to live, which is directly contradictory to what this book says. You don't take Jesus and put him and fit him in your life. You don't take Jesus and fit him in your life. You take Jesus and allow him to change your life in order to meet his standard. That's what you do. We're the created. The example that I gave at the mission that are not, it's probably an awful example but if you came to my house on any given night we're gonna, and, we, and we happen to be watching TV, we're, we're probably sitting down and we're probably watching a baseball game. We've got the MLB package where we can watch any game that we want to watch. So let's say there's 10 games on. I don't sit down and the TV tell me what game to watch. That's not how it works. I got the remote in my hand. I'm going to pick the game that I want to see. The TV doesn't tell me what to watch. Whatever you're watching on TV, it doesn't tell you what to watch. You're the one that's in control, right? You have to understand you are the created. You're not the creator. You don't tell the creator how it's going to be. I don't take Jesus and fit him into my life. All right, Jesus. I'll take you, but I'm going to fit you into how I want this thing to go. It's not how it works. If I make a commitment and place my life in his hands, that's exactly what I do. I place my life in his hands. I'm going to fit your standard. If this is what you've commanded me to do, then this is how I'm going to live. That's the choice. Jesus also said in Matthew 7, he said, someone asked him, well, how are we going to know who your disciples are? And he said, you, you shall know them by their fruit. 
James said that a faith that doesn't produce works is dead. If I'm going to allow Jesus to shape my life so I can meet his standard, then it's going to produce a life that's going to exist a certain way. I don't get to pick and choose. Here, here's what I want you to hear. Just wrap up. Jesus is king regardless of how you view him. He's king. I'll give you another bad example. <laughs> I deal with this all the time. And if you've got an example just like it in your life. But I can't tell you how many times that I've got a kid, whether they're nine or whether they're 18, that are standing in a batter's box with a two-strike count. And they stand there and they watch a borderline pitch. And they'll come back to the dugout and say, that wasn't a strike. Bro, you're walking back to the dugout. I don't care what you think. as a strike. So you can sit here and you can think whatever you want to think about Jesus. But it doesn't change the fact that he's the king. You don't have any say in that. He's the king. And how you, but how you do choose to view him is going to shape the way that you live your life. And here's the real scary part and the real truth. Church, how you live your life, how you perceive Jesus will shape how you live your life. And how you live your life is going to have an impact on everybody that is around you as you exist in the world. So this is not just a, what do you care about me? This is only going to affect me issue. That's the biggest, one of the biggest lies of the devil. Because how you choose to live is going to affect all those that are around you on a day-in, day-out basis. As a church, we're called to impact the world for Christ. Bottom line. And I want to challenge you this morning. Examine your life. Stand in front of the mirror. And ask myself the question, do I recognize Jesus not only as my Savior, but do I recognize Him as my King? That's a hard place to be and a tough place to get to living in the United States of America. Because we don't have a King. We like to beat our chest and say, I'm the master of my own destiny and I'm controlling me. But if I place my faith in Christ, He is my King. I want to challenge you to live for Him. So the world around you can be transformed and bring glory to him. That's the whole point. Go back and read Psalm 23. God does all of these wonderful things for you. But he does them so that he can bring glory to his name. That's the whole point. He's not doing it because you're just such an awesome person. He's doing it because he wants to bring glory to himself. That's, that's, that's the mission that we are charged with as a church. And it's, I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. Here's the whole point. It's not going to happen if you don't see Jesus as king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and, and just the opportunity that we have to study it, that we don't have to translate it or break it down. Um, it's, it's right there. I mean, most of us probably have multiple Bibles in our homes. Lord, and I pray that we'll study it and that we will study you uh, so that we truly can come to know who you are recognize who you are so it shapes the way that we live and so that we will live accordingly and appropriately so that we can promote the savior and the king that you are to all those that are around us to a world that's dying and lost and hurting and is looking for answers in every place but the right place and lord we have a prime opportunity to be of service to you and i fear that we miss it so often so lord i truly hope that we recognize who you are as king 
and that we will allow that to, to push us even into places where we're uncomfortable so that we can recognize you, bring glory to you, and save, help save a diving, dying world. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for this place. I thank you for these people. Uh, this, this place is truly a blessing, Lord, and I pray that, that we can just be the church that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.